It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who understand that the FDA and the CDC are two separate branches of the Health and Human Services Department. And even if you don't know that that's the case, you can listen. We'll help you understand and navigate. <laughs> but now you do. So mm-hmm. if you've listened this far, you can keep listening because you hey, know. Yep. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Great job. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonster, a pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. We have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking to our friend, and amazing human being all around, Dorit Rice. Uh Dorit is a professor of law at University of California, Hastings, and she knows all sorts of things about the intersection of vaccines and the law. So we're talking to her about that. We talk about um, legal harassment of pro-vaccine people. And then we end with a fascinating conversation about time travel vaccines. Uh which I predict will become a new specialty in medicine. Yep. We get some Outlander discussion in there. So I know we have some Outlander fans that listen to this. So you can uh, tune in for that at the end. Stick That's around. Right. Listen all the way through. So Nathan. Yes. It's been an interesting time in the vaccine world. Mm-hmm. Do you have any around the web stuff for us? Yeah. Well, I have a uh, some research that I want to talk about. Um, because one of the most recent blog posts, in fact, the most recent blog post that I did, which was still quite a number of months ago, when I talked about the importance of getting vaccines done during the pandemic, one of the things that I mentioned was the concern about getting co-infections, right? So nobody wants to get influenza or anything else in COVID at the same time, um, because that can could potentially lead to increased uh rate of bad outcomes. And at the time, there wasn't any research to specifically show that, just some case reports. But now we're starting to get a little bit of data in. So there was um, a an article, not, not, this, not a published study yet, because the study itself is in, I believe, preprint. But there was a news article in the BMJ that talked about some emerging research from Public Health England that looked at um, about 20,000 cases of people who were tested for both flu uh, and uh, COVID from January to April of 2020. And it found out of those that found just 58 people who had co-infections. So they did a lot of looking at people who had been tested for both at some point, but about 58 people with co-infections. So relatively small number of people that they looked at ultimately that had both. But they found that the mortality rate among them was 43% compared to, which was about twice the mortality rate of those who died with um with just COVID. So the upshot is that small and, and, and not yet published or peer reviewed research seems to indicate that the risk of death is quite a bit higher if you get both flu and COVID at the same time. And so it boils down to guess what, get your flu shot. If anything, this is one of the most important years to get your flu shot. Um, so hmm. yeah, do that. That's a really frightening study. Yeah. 
there's not going to be as many people like last season because it you know was kind of the end of flu season to be able to look at but this season it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with flu and covid at the same time the other thing is that both covid and flu to a certain extent you're also relying on other people to do the right thing mm-hmm. so relying on people to wear masks and to get their flu shots yep. and we aren't doing a very great job of caring for our neighbors and our communities in that way. So right. that's kind of scary. Yeah, a lot of the people that try to push back on this study are, are saying that the deaths are predominantly in the elderly population, which is not surprising. And it is true that the flu vaccine is not nearly as good uh, as in the elderly population as it is in the younger population, but that only serves to reinforce the fact that we all need to be getting our flu shots so that we don't spread flu to the elderly population as well as wearing our masks. And there is good data to suggest that um, that when younger, especially kids, but kids, young adults, when we all get our flu shots, that actually decreases the risk of influenza and um, mortality from influenza in the elderly and other vulnerable populations. So yes, keep that in mind when you plan right now when and how you're going to get your flu shot. And it's absolutely worth getting it done. You, you, you know, you can sure call your doctor's office, make sure that they are um, doing measures to keep people safe, um, you know, going and get your flu shot when there aren't sick people necessarily sometimes they schedule flu shots at different times so you're not likely to be exposed to somebody who's ill um and of course we're all you know at our clinic we're wearing masks and shields and doing all the kinds of um uh, precautionary measures that we can do and virtually all clinics are um or if you need to run in to get your flu shot somewhere um and you're masked up and you get it done at the pharmacy or whatnot and you practice good distancing you're going to be pretty safe it's really important to get your flu shot done Right. We have a grocery chain out here that's doing drive through flu mm-hmm. shots, too. So yep. I think those are common. Uh, you know, another thing I just want to mention in relation to this is that early on in COVID, we believed that children and young adults weren't efficient spreaders of the disease as they are with flu, that children are really efficient mm-hmm. vectors of influenza. Right. But I, we don't really believe that anymore, correct? Well, it kind of depends on the age and the fact that we don't have complete data. It does seem to be that the younger you are, the less of a risk of spread there is, which is not to say no risk or negligible risk, but certainly as you age and get into middle school and then high school and then adulthood, like those middle school and high school kids seem to be as efficient as adults to spread it. So... Um, you know, yes and no kind of depends on what age group you're looking at. And it's, we're still needing more data because, you know, at least in the United States, we shut down all the schools so fast. We don't have great data on kids spreading in schools. Well, that's terrible. Yeah. (laughs) This is all awful and I hate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to turn to my around the web. You got a nice pick me up for us. (laughs) Yeah. This will just have you a smile in the rest of the day. So this past Tuesday, the New York Times published an opinion piece written by um, Peter Doshi and Eric Topol. uh, Mm -hmm. Said 
these coronavirus trials don't answer one question we need to know. And the lead is, if you were to approve a coronavirus vaccine, would you approve one that you knew only protected people from the most mild form of COVID-19 or one that would prevent its serious complications? Mm -hmm. The answer is obvious. You would want to protect against the worst cases. Um, And then it goes on to say, but that's not what they're looking at in the trials and um, kind of trashes flu vaccine a little bit. Yep. um, It's great stuff. So I wanted to break this apart. Full disclosure, I asked a member of my scientific advisory board if they would write an opinion piece back to that. And Mm -hmm. um, the response was, let's let it die an unceremonious death that it (laughs) deserves. I said, okay. Um, but also that people who have actually made vaccines and, you know, discovered mm-hmm. vaccines, done all of the most difficult research, know that it's actually more difficult to prevent mild disease than it is to prevent severe disease. Right. And that in all likelihood, if you prevent mild disease, you're also efficiently preventing severe disease right and we see that with other vaccines like we know the chickenpox vaccine for example is a certain percent effective it's, it's more effective at preventing you know severe disease like you can see these reductions and then sometimes you can get a mild case of chickenpox even when you've been immunized mm-hmm. it, it basically reduces the severity so yeah it's <clears throat> it's and um, you know the measles vaccine prevents mm-hmm. mild measles disease right? And then prevents complications because you don't get measles. Yeah. So, yeah, it was an interesting and really disappointing um, opinion piece to read, uh, especially because, as as you know, and a lot of our listeners are going to know, Peter Doshi has this kind of very questionable history in terms of very questionable history in terms of um, talking about some of your basic anti-vaccine talking points when it comes to the flu shot in the past and probably some other shots as well. So he's not exactly the best, you know, he's not exactly an expert you would want to go to for this kind of a thing. He seems to have a bias and within it, you can see him making those digs at the flu vaccine that don't necessarily pan out if you really dig into the research. So that was, that was already off the bat. Um, a bad choice, I think, from the New York Times to, to print. And, you know, I think people should know that Peter Doshi is also on the editorial staff of the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, mm-hmm. which is stunning. The BMJ yeah. is the journal that published Brian Deere's research into the fraud of Andrew Wakefield. Mm-hmm. So they have, you know, obviously they have a stellar history he is on the editorial staff there and he wrote a piece a couple of years ago that sort of called into question um, the financing of um, our friend organizations such as Vaccinate Your Family and the Immunization Action Coalition. And he tried to call into question Voices for Vaccines. He tried mm-hmm. really hard. He emailed me multiple times um, my first response was to ig- ignore him because I just found it irritating and mm-hmm. I had other things to do. But then when it was clear that he was intent on 
digging into our finances and finding something, which is laughable Mm -hmm. because our finances are basically (laughs) like, okay, here's my piggy bank, you know, like (laughs) there's not much there. Um, I sent him to um, some of the people who are work at um, my fiscal sponsor, the task force for global health. And they took it through it and they actually spent a lot of time on him with it. And then he published the piece Someone in the rapid responses made a comment about voices for vaccines. Why aren't they in here? And then he goes through this whole thing like, well, I suspect, you know, basically he still suspects us of having shady money dealings, but he couldn't <laughs> find anything. But just because he didn't find anything doesn't mean it's not there. I'm like, thanks. I- <laughs> we spent a lot of time with you on this total BS <laughs> article, you know, that you know it says that the cdc is pulling the strings on you know and pharmaceutical companies are pulling people's strings and and are evil and terrible and you know still when you've got the one organization that's not receiving any money (laughs) even then you find a way to impugn our our name so peter doshi has made a lot of claims that people uh in the scientific community feel goes against the body of science, Mm -hmm. uh, including, as you mentioned, his claims against influenza. So, I mean, on one hand, I get why the New York Times is like, oh, one of the editorial staff from the BMJ and this other doctor that I've never actually heard of. Yeah, I don't know him either. Let's let's go ahead and publish their piece. Um, And the media is also getting really excited about publishing these... um, hey, maybe public health is actually bad and uh, we hate vaccines now because Trump wants one <laughs> articles. <sighs> well, this is a very a narrow um, path to navigate, a, a small like needle eye to thread there because definitely on the one hand, I'm completely sympathetic for with anybody who is looking at the concerns about the impact that the administration is having or the influence that they're having on the CDC and the could have on the FDA and being like, "Mm, I want to make sure that this vaccine is done legitimately. Like that is a genuinely understandable and, and uh, a concern that you should have. And at the same time to understand that when those processes are done and done appropriately, it works really well. So we need to be evaluating that as this, um, vaccine starts to come out um but i i kind of think it's okay to reserve judgment right now like i kind of want to read the stuff and yeah Mm -hmm. follow but i'm not going out and saying you have to get this vaccine or you should never get this vaccine Mm -hmm. until we know what that landscape looks like right and there's just too many people making these sort of bold pronouncements on Mm -hmm. one side or the other in ways that we never have with any other vaccine sort of let's see what data says and i really wish that we were just talking about the process right now yeah but i guess the process isn't sexy no and i would say to the people that are concerned about like how rapid it's happening you know rapid and and getting it done quickly does not mean that they're actually cutting corners in terms of what needs to be done to make a vaccine to approve a vaccine so you know when we talk about fast tracking we're largely talking about 
what place you are in line to get your approval to do the studies and to get that data reviewed and move along to the next phase. It's not as if you are getting permission to not study for the vaccine for as long or you know don't have to get as much data necessarily or stuff like that. You still there are still requirements that have to be met. So that I wouldn't be, you know, I don't, I want, I don't want people to be super nervous about that aspect that it's getting done efficiently, but mm -hmm. you know, we still have to pay attention to how everything kind of goes down when it comes to um, how the vaccine is approved and what potential influences could be <laughs> having an impact on that. Right. And there's a lot of work being done now that is usually done later. For example, mm -hmm. the ACIP and the CDC are getting ready and already having conversations about distribution and the review process and all of that. And they're already looking at phase one and phase two studies that have been completed so that you know they're sort of ready to go when the, when the data is available. But that mm -hmm. brings me back to a, an important point which is that people in the process need to understand that, you know, there's FDA approval and then there is ACIP advisory committee on immunization practices does the recommending to the CDC, which accepts or doesn't accept the recommendation. And then professional organizations like AAP, ACOG, AAFP accept those recommendations or reject them. And, and then you go talk to your doctor and your doctor right. says, yes, get this vaccine. Or you know what? AAP says, don't get this vaccine. An example would be the mm -hmm. um, live influenza flu mist a few mm -hmm. years ago that AAP was like, yeah, we're not, let's not give that, even though it yeah. was um, an okayed list. Approved. Yeah. And those are the organizations I'm going to be looking to as well when this starts to come out, to that, that independent organizations are agreeing uh, about the vaccine. So. But that is a future that we have to get to. So <laughs> everybody know. get your flu shots and you can have a better chance of getting to that future. Get your flu shot and your time travel shot. Okay. After the break, we're going to talk to the wonderful, the amazing, our friend, Dorit Rice. Yay. Hi, my name is Dr. Paul Offit, and I'm a member of the Voices for Vaccines Scientific Advisory Board and a proud Voices for Vaccines donor. This podcast is made possible by donors like you and me. Please consider becoming a monthly donor by visiting voicesforvaccines.org slash support. Thank you. And we are back with our friend Dorit Rice. Okay, hang on. I got to stop for a second. I talked to Scott Kennedy yesterday, and he and I got into an argument about how to pronounce your last name. Rice. That's what I told him, and he like he's like, "No, it's Reese," and I'm like, "I, but I'm pretty sure it's the second vowel." Okay. Most Americans pronounce it Reese, and I think that would be the more normal. But it's, I mean, they're not from America, the region. Anyhow, we are here back with our friend Dorit Rice, who is a professor of law at the University of California, Hastings, and a big vaccine smarty pants who knows all sorts of things about legal vaccine stuff. That is an official biography, by the way. Welcome, Dorit. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very touched. 
it's so great to have you. We love having you on. And I wanted to have you on because there's this sort of tendency for anti-vaxxers to take things to court these days. Mm-hmm. They seem it's to America. Be, well, yeah. They seem to be battling a lot more of the science in court. And I wonder if you can just, I mean, you kind of answered it there, but if you can just do a little bit of why you think they are heading to court now, what your sort of supposition is, if you're reading the tea leaves of anti-vaccine world, why they're going to court. Three things. First of all, the, I started with This is America because in the 18th century already, America, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, the French aristocrat who came to the United States and went around, uh, pointed out that in America, every legal, every political questions end up turning into a legal question. We tend to go to court on a whole set of things. Second, anti-vaccine groups differ on this. ICANN looks like got a, both a pot of money and a lawyer willing to represent them across a set of law schools. So it's an opportunity. They found that a hammer and they're going to try and use it all around. CHD is a little different because um, CHD is a children's health defense uh, organization, the organization dedicated to defending children from not getting diphtheria, is run by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And he's a lawyer. So being a lawyer is kind of probably predisposed to think going to court is is an answer to a lot of problems. The third thing is they've pretty much failed on every other form to remind you in the earlier 2000s, anti-vaccine activists had some successes in other areas. They had successes in uh, passing legislation. For example, several states that did not have philosophical exemptions adopted such exemptions. They had members on federal committees. They had sounding in the press. It used to be that every vaccine article would have an anti-vaccine voice. They've lost legitimacy over time as more and more data came out and as more and more outbreaks came up. So those avenues are closed. They turn to the courts because they're looking where else they can make a difference. What kind of effect do you think that has nowadays on people making vaccine decisions or their willingness to speak out against anti-vaccine information? Is this kind of uh, successful in intimidating people? We know that a lot of these lawsuits don't necessarily go far, but what, what do you think the ultimate effect is here? I don't think it's directly an effect on the people deciding to vaccinate at at that point. I think it has a number of other effects. So first of all, remember that the lawsuits actually vary with the different lawsuits. And why don't I start by giving you an overview of the landscape of lawsuits? uh, And that would probably inform better my answer. That would be Mm -hmm. fantastic. Here's what we're seeing. We've always seen lawsuits challenging mandates, and we're still seeing that. For example, the University of California has recently mandated a flu vaccine, and the Children's Health Defense is bringing suit against that, just as when New York removed its religious exemption, they brought suit against that. Those usually fail. You can't assume that, but so far they've had little success in that. It's a very legitimate use of the court. They're going to court and saying, People have a right not to be vaccinated, and the courts need to decide whether or not that right is in fact protected. Courts have so far, and I think correctly, upheld vaccine mandate, but it's legitimate for someone who says, 
I think my rights are being infringed to turn to courts. The second kind of lawsuits we're seeing are product liability lawsuits, which is especially ironic since uh, anti-vaccine people loudly claim there's zero liability of manufacturers in the courts while bringing these lawsuits. So Robert F. Kennedy is now involved in three lawsuits against Merck over Gardasil, all of which are claiming things that large epidemiology studies show Gardasil doesn't cause, and all of which are based to a large extent on conspiracy theory. But these are pretty traditional lawsuits. They're product liability lawsuits. They won't intimidate if they end in a jury verdict for the plaintiff, which is highly unlikely and won't happen for a long time, they could have a negative effect on acceptance of Gardasil. So that's an, another thing. The, the third kind of lawsuit are FOIA lawsuits brought by ICANN. ICANN seems to have discovered that FOIA claims are a good way to get information they can then use to misrepresent and message their followers. And just to let our followers know, our listeners know, I should say, ICANN is the Informed Consent Action Network uh, run by Del Bigtree, who is a regular mention on this particular podcast. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Just to add, because I know that I tend to use acronyms too much, uh, FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act, the Federal Freedom of Information Act. And ICANN, through a, a New York law firm run by a lawyer, Aaron Siri, who has participated in multiple claims that can be described fairly as anti-vaccine, multiple cases that can be fairly described as anti-vaccine, is working with ICANN on these claims. So they've brought multiple Freedom of Information Act claims against both the CDC and HHS. And I'm intentionally describing what they do with this claim as misrepresenting, because a lot of these claims are clearly not designed to do what FOIA is supposed to do. Here's what FOIA is supposed to do. FOIA is supposed to allow citizens to have access to records the agency has. Uh, you're supposed to ask things they already have in their hands. And with a few exceptions, the government is supposed to give you records. And the idea is transparency. I will also add that FOIA is an unusual law in that everybody knows it's prone to abuse. And that doesn't matter in terms of enforcing it. The fact that the person bringing the case has a negative mo motive doesn't mean that you shouldn't give them information because the idea is more transparency is better for government. However, that's not the kind of claim that we're talking about here. If you look at the FOIA request, a lot of them read as they're not asking for records. They are making a claim about the science. FOIA isn't designed for the agency to argue on the merits just to give records or not give. When ICANN is writing a complaint saying, we think vaccine cause autism because, that doesn't really belong in a FOIA claim. Many of these claims are set out as, here's the anti-vaccine claim. When the agency comes back and either doesn't find the records or give them records they think don't answer their claim, they misrepresent it as, the, the government doesn't have studies showing vaccines don't cause autism. That's just a misrepresentation of a FOIA claim. For example, if there are 10 studies that show, and there are, there are more than that, if there's a lot of studies that show vaccines don't cause autism, but they're not done by CDC, and they're studies, they're in the scientific literature, they are not record that the agency has. So they're not the kind of thing FOIA is designed to get for you. 
scientific literature is not agency records. Often the agencies won't have them. Other cases, they've asked the FDA for clinical trial results. Fine. I mean, that is, these are records. The, agency, the FDA should have results from clinical trial vaccines, and it's fine to get them with trade secret deducted. But they seem not to quite understand them very well. To give one example, they asked for results for uh, MMR. They got results for MMR that address a specific clinical trial that looked at the change from one strain of rubella in the vaccine to the other. They shared it saying, look, the vaccine was not compared to a placebo. Well, yes, this is MMR. You're not supposed to compare it to the placebo. You're supposed to compare it to the old MMR. They seem to completely miss that what they have is not their initial licensing studies of MMR, which also, by the way, should not complain the, compare the vaccine to a placebo. When you're adopting a combination vaccine, the question is, is the vaccine as safe and as effective as the individual vaccine you wanted to replace? That's what you should be looking at. Uh, because you're not acting on a clean slate. You already have vaccine for these diseases. You're just asking, is a combination a good idea? You know, you say that they get this information and then they don't understand it or they don't interpret it correctly, but I think I might push back on that a little bit. And I think they design the FOIA requests specifically so that they can get things that they can spin or ask right. it in a certain way so it can't be answered. Uh, or, you know, ask, as you mentioned, like, we want all the studies that uh, show this conclusion that we've made or disprove this right. conclusion that we've made. And that's not a search term. That's not something that you can just be like, oh, yeah, here's this. This is asking them to make a evaluation of your statement. And then they right. get it and then they can use it as fodder. And that's kind of right. what I feel like I see out there as you see it being misused in this way. And then it's also seems to be and I don't, I'm wondering about your if you have uh heard about this but kind of an intimidation tactic like do mm -hmm. public health agencies does it make them more or less able to do their job if they're under the threat of these kind of frivolous uh, FOIA requests so first of all it's always hard to get at the motives of someone I, I, I agree with you that there's a lot of truth in, in seeing this as a manipulative dishonest effort to uh, make propaganda points among other things because they do have a lawyer competent lawyer who should tell them this isn't how FOIA requests work when he writes these. So I, I think there's indication that they are certainly using it for propaganda points, but I also think we're seeing indications of a lack of understanding in some cases. Doesn't mean they're not being manipulative, but for example, describing MMR, the, the licensing of the MMR2 as the original licensing of MMR is a pretty basic mistake that's going to be called out. Even hopefully some of your followers will point out that this is a mistake. So I think, I think you, I'm, I, I'm not trying to display the dishonesty. I think we're seeing a lot of dishonesty, especially in the way the results are framed. Mm -hmm. But I think part of the problem is also these are people who really don't understand clinical mm -hmm. trials or vaccines very well. I have a little bit of a follow-up about that because um, is it the Celtses who are the people who mostly fund Del Big Tree and I can is that their name? Yes. My question, My question is, is, I mean, I mean we can't we get can't into get their into brains their brain and, figure and figure out their motivations. Their motivations. You're correct. Mm -hmm. right? But you, but have, you have this, this tremendous, tremendous amount, of amount of wealth, wealth coming, coming in. in. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, millions, millions of, dollars of dollars that are, that are funding, funding 
these FOIA requests that are being framed as we won this lawsuit, right? And these dishonest FOIA requests. And we have this, you know, TV producer, Emmy winning, I have to add, TV producher, who, uh, always have to add that, um, who is, you know, a showman. So he certainly can do whatever, whatever he wants, he to, wants for to for show. And then, and then a, lawyer a lawyer who has, who has shown, shown himself, himself to be a, a, a manipulative actor, actor in several places, places um, concerning vaccines, vaccines um, that, that I won't get, get into right, right now. now. But you but have, you like, have these like these three things, things converging. converging. Mm-hmm. Generally, Generally, when we're, when we're looking, looking at this sort of large-scale, moneyed legal action... That has this sort of Hollywood Hollywood quality quality to it. It It has like like New York York financing, financing, Hollywood showmanship, and a a dishonest lawyer. lawyer. I'll 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 just, I'm just going to go ahead and say say dishonest lawyer. Actually, maybe I shouldn't. You shouldn't. You can say it. Okay. A lawyer that has acted dishonestly in the past. When those three things converge, how do we parse... What exactly are they trying to do and what's their end goal? And I mean, we have to be able to predict a little bit after a while what they're doing legally so that we can, you know, do some pre-bunking or, you know, prepare people for here's what's coming down the pike. You can expect this um, and and get our own folks to sort of come back at it. So that's a huge question I know I just asked you. But sort of where do you see them going? I think there's a difference in actors here. In terms of ICANN, I think the FOIA requests are, they have been using them pretty consistently as a way to uh, work up their followers. Basically, the they've been using these requests to say, look, the agencies are corrupt, they're hiding from you. If you really look at it, they don't have the data to show what they're doing or they haven't done their work or they haven't uh, done the oversight or the data actually shows that, that things aren't safe. They've said all of this with no good basis following this request. I think it's mostly directed at their followers. It's a way to show, A, that they're doing something, B, it's a way to uh, cement already existing anti-vaccine belief. I don't think these are aimed at fence-sitters, to be honest. I really don't, because some of them are very extreme. But they do work well on followers, on people who are already anti-vaccine. That's my best guess. I, I think uh, you're also right in raising earlier, uh, you're, you're talking about the harassment value, Nathan. Basically, you're saying this can be used to harass public officials. Um, I would point out that the way it works with the federal government, the harassment value isn't as high as you'd think. Because So ha- what happens when you get a FOIA request? It goes to the agency first. There's the agency, so they, they aren't the only FOIA requesters the agency is dealing with. The agency has someone who, who handles their FOIA request, either a public official or a, lo- or a, a lawyer that's uh, a little external to what the agency does. That official tells the rest of the agency what they'd like to see, and they try to put together a response and answer according to the law, what they're willing to give, what they're not willing to give. If you take it to court, it's the Department of Justice that represents the federal government in court, not the CDC. And the Department of Justice lawyers are going to do that regardless. They're going to be addressing some case. A lot of times they, they see these as not worth the time and they try to settle them, which is probably why we've seen settlements of cases that 
could have been kicked out on this isn't a FOIA claim. It's just easier to make it go away that way. In terms of the harassment process on the officials directly, it's not as direct or as effective as you think, but it does have value in telling your followers, look, we're doing all this work, even though it's mostly noise, and look at the horrible things we've found. So I think it's mostly a follower-directed propaganda tool. I mean, I'm, I'm saying I don't think it works on fancy or I'm happy to have pushback and be convinced, but I think this is too much inside baseball to be very effective with, fan, with fancy tours. In terms of the lawyer, I mean, I, I think... I'm pretty certain that uh, Mr. Siri is at least sympathetic to anti-vaccine views. I don't have a basis to say he's being dishonest. His job as a lawyer is to zealously represent his clients. They're paying him. He has a fiduciary duty to them, not to us. And his job is to help them achieve their interests. He's not allowed to directly lie. He doesn't have to tell, to say openly things that are, will be bad for his clients. And in fact, in some cases, he's prohibited from saying it publicly. Sure. So as long as we're talking about harassment, um, I think that you and I, without naming names, should mention that we've both received legal threats or FOIA requests that are primarily harassing in nature um, that you have received a lot of FOIA requests from an individual that I don't want to name on this podcast because I don't want to give you more trouble um, and that I received a uh, cease and desist letter for doing my job um, from someone who is unhappy that I was doing my job and so um, I mean from my perspective um, and you wrote a lovely piece on this on the Skeptical Rapture blog for me. I don't think you've written anything defending yourself because this is the kind of human being you are that every time I'm attacked, you're so much angrier than when you're attacked. <laughs> it's sort of stunning. And uh, it'd be nice if we could um, as as persuasively defend you as you do us, but we are not as skilled as you are. Can you speak a little bit to when those sort of personal legal harassments come, um, what your advice is to a person who might be on the receiving end of them? Because basically, if you're on the internet making comments about vaccines, it could be you. Yes, I wrote some of my advice at the end of the post. I wrote about the harassment you faced. Generally speaking, a number of things for someone receiving a legal threat. First of all, take a breath. Remember that most of these threats are baseless. That's not true for FOIA requests, and I'll distinguish them in a moment. Second, talk to, the, talk to others. We can help you find a pro bono lawyer that can look at the threats, tell you if there's a concern, and write a response if, if needed. It's not always quick, but uh, do raise it and, and talk about legal threat, threats. Most of the legal threats I've seen were without basis in the terms, in the sense that there wasn't a legal cause for action there. However, uh, that doesn't mean, so this is the United States, anyone can sue for anything. And for many people, just being sued, even if it, the, it's going to lose, is going to be bad enough. Talk to us uh, and, and we'll discuss what we can do. FOIA requests are a little different. 
SORA Public Record Act request at the state level. FOIA is federal, public record data at the state. Here's the reality. If you're a public official, state or federal, your materials on that are related to your work are public. You need to write with that in mind. Remember that however threatening it feels to get those requests, generally speaking, your emails are boring and don't have anything scandalous. That doesn't mean that people who are conspiracy-minded won't read them as having something scandalous. They will. But the reality is that they're not your audience. And that's true for a legal threat as well. The harassers can get under your skin, and here you need to turn to your support circle, get the help you need, uh, don't let it break you. Do what do what you need to to get uh, the support you need. But externally, when most people see you being harassed, they see you being harassed. And when they see things that aren't scandalous put out as scandalous, it doesn't work against you. It works against the people trying to blow these things out of proportion. You need to remember you've done nothing wrong. A lot of times it, you don't even have to correct the error by give the harasser atten attention. If you need to correct the error, it shouldn't be directed to the harasser. A statement to others is the place to talk. Say what you actually did. If something is taken out of context, add in the context. Basically, remember that most well-minded people aren't looking to get you. Most of them won't fall for what the conspiracy theorist is saying. And these are the people you need to to address. A lot of people seeing you harassed will understand and sympathize. Yeah, I think that's extremely helpful. Um, do you see this as kind of the strategy for anti-vaccine groups going forward as long as they continue to not have either you know, widespread public support or scientific support? And are there kind of, besides being, you know, if you're going to be subjected to FOIA requests, being careful about what you write, what kinds of things can uh, people and organizations do to help avoid this kind of harassment? Harassment has been part of the anti-vaccine creed since long before they lost their ability to directly influence policy. Anna Kata wrote Tactics and Trope of the Anti-Vaccine Movement in 2011, and one of the things she wrote about was attacking the opposition. It's always been part of the deal. It's probably going to stay that way. Be aware that if you're stepping into this, you may get harassed by some people who are not very pleasant. That, and, and by the way, they do it to each other as well, uh, for what it's worth. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the main thing, and, and this is true of harassment in any area. The main thing when you're faced with this kind of harassment uh, is self-care. Don't be alone. Turn to others, and we have groups that can support you. If you have an employer, People can help you talk to the employer or address it and give you guidance on when to talk to the employer. The reality is you can't control what other people do. You can't control your environment and what's going on with you. So basic precautions include making your uh, social media profile uh, private where it should be private. Make your friends request lists private. Make your children photos private. Your personal address may or may not be private. Remember that most of the time it's going to stop at petty harassment. I realize it can be scary and, and intimidating. But at this point, at least, we're not at the point we ha where we have to worry about widespread violence from the anti-vaccine movement. If it happens, I mean, we, we will have to discuss it again. But right now, what you need to be worried about is petty harassment. 
including, for example, harassing you at your employment. Make sure your social media is, is private where it should be. Talk to your employer. I'm speaking up about vaccines. There's people in the anti-vaccine movement that target people personally. I might get some blowback even that's aimed at you. Here are the kind of things other people eh, went into. You don't, it, it's kind of a tricky thing. You want to ask yourself, is it worth talking to my employer? Is it going to happen? But at least have a game plan on how to interact with your employer on this. It's always okay to take a break. Uh, we have some, we have support groups. We can talk to you and, and give you emotional support. You, I hope most people have an in-person support circle that can help them also. But it's also okay to take the breaks you need. And I want to remind people that for most people, most of the time, harassment either doesn't happen or isn't intense or is short-lived and then you go back to your normal. And remember that most of the time, vaccine advocacy give, put you in touch with smart, wonderful, mm-hmm. caring people. It has a lot of benefits and it means you're working for the good of children. So I, I just said something that sounds as if this is going to be horrible, etc. That's not most people, most of the time, vaccine experience. For most of us, most of it is good. The harassment can feel really intense when it does happen, but it's usually focused, small, and shouldn't be a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. To yeah. be very cynical, yeah. uh, the fact that a group of people you don't know who misunderstand vaccine hate you, I mean, they don't know you. Mm-hmm. They're not really addressing you. They're reacting to their own prejudice and they feel threatened by the fact that you're pushing against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The tendency is the more effective you are, the more likely you are to receive harassment. So if you are talking to your own social circles and, you know, even if you post something that's relatively public, unless it goes huge, you you know, don't feel like every time you speak up and be an example about um, vaccinating that, that you're going to be subject to that necessarily. You, you almost, most of the time you are not, but when people start to have effective messages like you two, uh, then they, those things, when they when they go big, you start to see that blowback and, and the anti-vaxxers feel threatened and they resort to those kind of right. tactics. That's what I've observed time over time again. Yeah, I will say too that um, the worst of it, besides being threatened to be sued um, and the public suppositions that I had killed my husband uh. besides, besides those two things um <laughs> oh and the <laughs> like there was a apparently I attacked a right-wing journalist in downtown Minneapolis on a day that I hadn't been in downtown Minneapolis like besides those rumors going <laughs> thought, around about me thought we're doing a Tiger King mashup here what's happening <laughs> <laughs> it was so weird like I was sitting there like wasn't she the one who crashed our rally I'm like nope I certainly was not at the Capitol with a whole bunch of unvaccinated people I promise you um but the I was gonna say the worst part is the sort of deluge of messages I get on Twitter and Facebook um, inquiring as to the quality of my sleep and threatening to pray for me. <laughs> I admit that I'm a really bad sleeper, but that oh, long oh. predated my, my vaccine days and it gotten worse <laughs> with two young kids. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually a fantastic sleeper. Like if there's one skill I am really good at right now, it is definitely getting a full night's sleep. One more thing here. 
and, and I mean, I, I don't, this might sound wrong, but I'll say it anyway. Remember that a lot of these people end in the anti-vaccine movement because they're not in a, a good place. Some of them have a child with special needs and they don't have the resources, emotional, or social or, or wealth-wise, to deal with that situation. Some of them have lost a child. Some of them have problems of other varieties. So a lot of them are coming in probably sleep-deprived, often with a lot of other stress. And what you're seeing is they found a place to channel their personal upset, their personal pain. It's a place that can hurt others, and that's where we need to push back. But really, a lot of what we're seeing when we're seeing them go out is these are hurting people. A lot of it really isn't about us at all, but about the fact that these people are in a bad place and would rather kick you than than have to deal with what's clawing at them. Yeah, but to bring it back full circle, Del Bigtree and RFK Jr. are not hurting people. No, no, that, that refers... So they're also not the main people out sending abuse. They just said, give their followers a target and, and point them. The people you're getting the messages from are usually more the foot soldiers. That's less true of lawsuits, but it's true of the her, uh, petty harassment. Yes, but you're right. The leaders are not the, the people who are hurting. They're the people capitalizing on it, using it. I'm not saying and they don't others. believe the anti-vaccine creed. Yes, I think they believe the, the basic thing that vaccines are bad, even though I, I, I sincerely think and have seen too many examples that they are willing to lie in the co- uh, service mm-hmm. of the cause. But they're not, I mean, to some extent, they're misleading others, intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah, I think there's, I've always thought there was kind of a spectrum between the big three. This is just my opinion. But like when I look at uh, Andrew, Andrew Wakefield, Del Bigtree, and uh, RFK Jr., I feel like Wakefield probably knows the most that what he's saying is wrong and is willing to do it. I feel like Big mm-hmm. Tree being the producer is kind of in the middle. Like he certainly doesn't like vaccines, but he's willing to stretch the truth when he needs to to make his point. And then I feel like RFK Jr. is the most, um, uh, has been the most uh, hoodwinked on the whole thing. Like he's been fooled into believing a lot of stuff that isn't true and needs to take a step back and look at the, <laughs> like, how he's wrong. But that's just kind of my general. Uh, opinion of how those kind of play out when I see them interacting with people. Yes and no for RFK Jr. I, I, I agree with you with the other two, but I would point out that I thought like, he, I think RFK Jr. is a believer that vaccines are bad. I, mm-hmm. I think that's, he, he's, he's, I mean, he's paid a price for his activism. So I think he really believes that core, but there have been specific instances where he's clearly lied, such as saying now zero li- that vaccine manufacturers have zero liability sure. yeah. while he's involved in lawsuits, like saying in the Zimmerman case we've talked about in a previous case that Zimmerman was a main actor when Zimmerman mm-hmm. was literally a footnote in the two decisions he's talking about. Yeah, Areas that he has expertise in and should know much better, he is still mm-hmm. willing to um, alter the truth. Yeah. All this talking about lawsuits and legal challenges, but also harassment, petty harassment, legal harassment, and and you know, especially the like threats against people's jobs um, and their livelihoods, always brings to mind how we should behave ourselves 
when we are doing our advocacy. And so I'm wondering if you have any advice for our listeners about their comportment, whether in person or online, when discussing vaccines. Well, you know my views on this. My view is, for a number of reasons, we should do our best to remain professional, remain above the petty harassment. As hard as it is, not get dragged down. And I know it's hard. It's always hard. At some point, everybody has uh, limits. But here's why I think it's important to remain professional. A, you're not talking to the harasser. Most of these harassers are, aren't going to be convinced by you. Maybe something in their life will change and they'll come back, but it's not going to be in the discussion. And by the way, if something in their life change, your remaining professional might be a reason for them to turn to you later. But you won't change them directly. But when you're on social media, there are a lot of other reasons. When they see one party saying, you Nazi, you all kinds of nasty thing. And one party saying, but listen, vaccines don't cause autism and here's why. They see the difference. If you can remain on the factual side, on the side that answers directly and remains professional, that will be seen by the lurkers and, with, and it could make, be the one thing that makes a difference. For many of us, we don't, many people don't have expertise in the subject matter. Nobody has expertise in anything. A lot of times it will come down on who looks like you can trust them. It's not going to be the person that's threatening and calling names. That's one thing. The other thing is beyond the harassers, uh, and this is really personal and I know others will feel, I feel better if my, with myself if I can remain the person my mom would like me to be. My mom would not like me to, to curse, uh, insult, and directly harass people. The third part is a little bit of compassion. Many of these people really, as I said, are coming from a bad place. Whatever you say, they're going to see it as an insult. If you, someone is saying, vaccines cause my child autism, and you answer them, vaccines don't cause autism, they're going to hear you're a liar, even if that's not what you said, and even if that's, that's not what you meant. It's just, they're too involved in it. Understand that when they're kicking you back, it's because they heard you, they think you said that they're a liar. I think that calls for some compassion. And, and finally, if you're out there representing true science and protecting children, I do think that you need to hold yourself to a, to a standard that, that allows you to stand up for science, truth, and protecting children. And I hope that for a lot of us are speaking up for vaccines because we believe in science. We want to get to the truth and we want children protected. I think that's really fantastic advice. And I would add to that too, uh, as far as, you know, protecting yourself, if at any point you feel uncomfortable with the person that you're having the conversation with, it's okay to end it right there. And you, I know you, Dorit, go far and beyond continuing conversations with people, even when I feel like I would be ending the conversation <laughs> just because I know you want to reach out and either help them or demonstrate to people watching um, what the truth is, but you know, if anybody feels uncomfortable at all, it's very easy to say, you know, this was a great conversation. Thanks for listening. I think we've reached the, I often use some kind of phrase, like, I think this conversation has passed the point of peak productivity. Have a great day. <laughs> and then if you need to mute or block or whatever, that's perfectly fine. So don't feel like, you know, if at any point you feel like mm, this isn't going well, you can end it. It's fine. Wouldn't it be great if you could mute or block people like in person? 
<laughs> I'm really bad at letting things go as well. So that's part of it. But uh, yes, it's fair to let things go. I think um, our friend calling McRoberts pointed out that after the fifth round, nobody's listening to anyone anymore. That's probably a good place to end it and go away, yeah. at least as far as the person you're talking to is concerned. Good advice. So, so I want to leave, leave with, with a, a fun, fun question, question for both, for of, both you. of you. I have been been doing doing some pandemic pandemic watching. watching. Finally, Finally, I got got around around to watching the Outlander Outlander series. series. Mm. And there's, of course, time travel in it. But the thing that always strikes me is when there's a smallpox outbreak and she's like, I cannot get the smallpox. I've been inoculated. (laughs) (laughs) Or there's typhoid. She's like, do not worry. I cannot get typhoid. I have been inoculated. You do Um, a great impression of Claire. Thank you. Um, don't ask me to do the Scottish people. Uh, but it got me thinking, if I were going to time travel, I should get vaccinated beforehand. And so my question, my last question for both of you, what time travel vaccines would you recommend? Smallpox. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I don't see why I wouldn't just get the whole. I guess I'd get the regular schedule, but yeah, you would really want to get a smallpox vaccine. Uh, I don't know how you get your hands on one before you went back in time, but if you had to get plutonium and all that other stuff, I suppose that you'd find a way. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> if she's going to time travel, then whoever's sending her would probably be able to get the vaccine. I would add just, yellow fever. You could go. Uh, you could drop back into like the '60s. And get yourself a smallpox vaccine and then go the rest of the way. (laughs) Just stop off, stop off pre-1977 and uh, get yourself your smallpox vaccine real quick and then head out. Hey, my husband got a smallpox vaccine in 2003. I got one in 1979. Yellow fever, uh, (laughs) probably probably both cholera and uh, typhoid fever if you can get them. Mm -hmm. What else? Uh, Well... The problem with TB is that we don't have a good adult vaccine. Right. If you could go back to being an infant and get the TB, that's yeah, probably... I don't think you can age time travel. <laughs> yes. Because I would definitely do that if I could. I'd be like, ta-da, I'm 19 again. Look at me. Oh, but maybe you can go to the future wow. when we okay, do so have a good got really TB complicated. vaccine and get that. This is very Bill okay. and Ted now. We've... <laughs> We're going to go to the future when we've already written the song that saves humanity. (laughs) And then we're going to get it, bring it back, and play it. All right. Well, I'll just cut off this conversation then. Um, Our (laughs) listeners can go ahead and tweet us or what we have to. Um, Dory, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And where can people find you on Twitter if they need to? My handle is Dorit, D-O-R-I-T-M-I. All righty. And I'm Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org or on Twitter at Voices Number Four Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Find me uh, on Facebook or find my Twitter, which is PedsGeekMD, or my blog, PedsGeekMD.com. All right, and scene. <laughs>